good morning. I'll be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11 and 19 and 20. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you and whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. It's interesting, but my question is, why should God care so much about this sort of thing? An individual's sexuality in the grand scheme of the universe is such a small thing. Why should he, or for that matter, why should the church care so much about my sexuality? Thank you, Michael. Thanks a little. <laughs> good morning. So good to be with you again. My name is Adrian. If we haven't met, I've been gone the last couple Sundays. Miss being with you. So grateful to be back together again today. Very thankful for uh, Tim Stratton and the messages that he provided over the past couple Sundays. Uh, what a great job he did in our series, I Believe in God, but as he dealt with um, the question, does science disprove Christianity, and the question about the problem of evil. You know, it strikes me in this series though, that we're going through, I believe in God, but that the first four messages though, that we've done have all dealt with intellectual questions like those. The others though, that we've addressed are, uh, I believe in God, but is the Bible really reliable? Can it be trusted? I believe in God, but how can you say that Jesus is the only way? in the midst of all the different religions, though, that we have in the world. Each of those are intellectual questions and objections, though, that many have toward the Christian faith. Today's question is a bit different. It's a cultural question. It's an emotional question. And in a very real sense, for many of us, it's a personal question. We're in a live and let live culture, are we not? where that's just kind of the expectation that I'm going to do what I'm going to do, and you're going to do what you're going to do, and no one say anything about anyone doing something wrong. Okay, it's a live and let live culture, such that it now is considered very strange that any Christian would uh, object when Katy Perry sings a song, I kissed a girl and I liked it. It's considered strange that anyone would object to that today. Every bit as strange as it was 25 years ago that anyone would declare such a thing out loud and not expect any kind of objection. So today, to say something like that and not get an objection or to get an objection after saying something like that, that's considered strange. The expectation is sit down and shut it, isn't it? We're going to talk today about the dominant cultural conversation related to sexuality, and homosexuality, it's the dominant cultural conversation of our time. And if you have young children, 
who you wish not to be a part of this discussion, you're more than welcome to check them into E-Free Kids right now. That's totally fine. That's where my kids are today. Uh, if you are an adult or a pastor and you'd like to go check yourself into E-Free Kids at this time, <laughs> you can join me as I do the same. <laughs> How I wish. Now we're going to talk about it. I'm going to speak to a number of the common questions in a mature way. In the time that we have, we'll, we'll speak to a number of the, the very uh, common questions that I get, that I'm sure that you get, related to uh, sexual activity outside of marriage, same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior, uh, homosexual behavior versus homosexual attraction, what were the differences there, and why does God seem to care about this stuff, as Michael just noted so well. I'm going to need the Lord's help as I speak on this topic, so I'm going to pray, and perhaps if you'd be willing, you can pray for me this morning also. Father in heaven, I thank you for this day. I thank you that we can come together with these friends and speak in this great church in a mature matter about a very difficult cultural question. We ask, Lord, that you would help us today. We recognize that there are many here today that are struggling with any different number of areas of life. Uh, there will be many here today that are struggling sexually in all different ways, and I ask your grace on them. Father, my deep desire is to come with grace and with truth today in a way that would be honoring to your word and honoring to every person in attendance. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and I pray that would be communicated. Father, help me to think clearly as we process this unique cultural question that has become personal for many of us. I ask, God, for all of us that you would give us an open mind, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I'd like to say that if you're new here today, or if you're new to church just recently, this is not a conversation that we have a lot. This is not a discussion that we have here frequently. I'd want you to know that um, we don't like to emphasize certain issues over and above other issues. There is a certain danger to emphasize this particular issue today because you can unintentionally elevate it above other issues. And that's the last thing that I want to do. But on the other hand, this issue is all in the news, isn't it? It is all in our schools. It's in our minds. It's in our homes. And so we are wise from time to time to talk about what would God's perspective be? What would God's plan be for this area of life? Moreover, the truth is, many of us have friends and neighbors and family who have been directly affected by homosexual behavior and same-sex attraction. I know there are here at Carney E. Free friends who struggle with these things. There are many others who struggle with sexual addictions in other areas. Please hear me clearly. We are so glad that you are here. So glad that we can be the kind of church, the kind of environment that we can wrestle and talk about these things as we acknowledge that we all have various struggles and temptations. This impacts us all. 
Let me give you just one example of how it's recently impacted me and my wife. A few years ago at our previous home, our previous place of ministry, we had a number of neighbors over for dinner as we are in the habit of doing on a regular basis while we have neighbors into our home. And on this particular night, one gentleman came over and I began a conversation with him. And uh, we're probably about 60 seconds into the conversation and uh, he asked me, so what do you do for a living? That question I, I love to avoid. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm a pastor. I'm in investments, eternal investments. I'm a pastor, I told him. And he said, oh, how about that? Yeah, how about that? And then he said to me, my dad was a pastor. And I say, oh, how about that? Now we got something to talk about. I'd like to hear some of your stories, some of your experiences from your dad who was a pastor. And the truth is, if your dad was a pastor, I'm going to find you. And I'm going to be asking you some questions. What did he do right? What did he do wrong? Because I want to learn from what he did right and avoid well what he did wrong. But I asked him, okay, so your dad was a pastor. How about that? Tell me about some of your experiences with your dad who was a pastor. And he said, overall, it was a really good experience. I had a very loving father. I really enjoyed the church. I spent all my time, my childhood in the church. But then things got estranged when, as an adult, I told my dad that I was gay. Now, what's going on in that moment? 60 seconds in... He is asking the question, am I safe here? 60 seconds into the conversation, he's asking the question, can we continue to have this conversation? What is your response, pastor, going to be to me in your home? And friends, when you answer in that moment with all shock, you close the door to that relationship. And when you answer in that moment with all truth and no grace, you close the door to that relationship. Whatever the self-revelation might be, I'm struggling with pornography, a woman might tell you, a man might tell you. I'm struggling with lying, I'm struggling with gluttony, whatever it might be, when you react with all truth and no grace in that moment, you close the door. And when you react in that moment of self-revelation with all grace and no truth, then that person will have to surmise that your Christianity is about as firm as a wet noodle. So what do you do in that moment when these conversations come up, as they inevitably will? In this particular moment, I simply asked questions, asked about his experience, said I'd love to get to know you a little bit better, in the hopes that perhaps though, this man would experience a little bit of Christian love, even from a pastor. Now, I certainly have a ways to go in this, but as best we are able, when given the opportunity, we want to respond full of grace, and full of truth, which is very, very difficult to do. Okay, there's a number of ways this conversation related to sexuality has typically been framed in our American culture. There have been some uh, that have focused only on grace and others only on truth, and certainly from the homosexual community, typically the way that this has been framed is the very worst of all sins is to label anyone's sexual activity sin. As well, it's been considered even sinful for those who had same-sex attraction not to act on that same-sex attraction. That's the way this conversation's been framed by the homosexual community. The traditional Christian community is framed in a very different way, saying that this thing is so bad that you can't even speak of it. And to rank certain sins above others and homosexuality being the absolute worst 
and not making any distinction between behavior and attraction. What I would like to present today is a third way, which I believe is the way of Jesus, and that is full of grace and full of truth. It's the way of Jesus that acknowledges the difference between same-sex behavior and same-sex attraction. It's the way of Jesus that acknowledges there is no sin that is worse than any other sin. Can I get an amen to that? There is none. The commands of God are unbreakable. And the love of God for you, wherever you are today, is unfathomable. Most of us, I think probably all of us, would err on the side of either truth or grace. So in this container, we have a full cup of truth. Who errs mostly on the side of truth in this room? Anyone want to admit it? Okay. On this side, we have a full cup of grace. And who would say they err mostly on the side of grace in this room? Anyone want to admit it? Okay, very few hands went up. No one wants to participate in my little illustration, I see. Uh, most of us err on one side or another, such that we would say, oh, I'm probably 75% truth and 25% grace. Or I'm 75% grace and 25% truth. Put together, you have the full me. And then into that, you see the prologue to the Gospel of John in which the closest associate of Jesus, the best friend of Jesus, the disciple John says this of him as he begins his ministry. The Word became flesh. That is Jesus, the Word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Father, the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and yet at the same time full of truth. You say, how is that possible that Jesus had a full cup of truth and a full cup of grace? I mean, it just staggers the mind, doesn't it? Because all of us, if we are honest, every person that I've ever met errs on one side or the other. Me too. And then Jesus enters into the scene and we see from him a full soul of truth and a full soul of of grace, such that we have purple royalty that has never been seen from anyone except Christ. And none of us is going to perfectly achieve that, but hear me clearly, that is the standard. That is what we strive for in this and all the other difficult cultural conversations that we must engage in today. Let me begin with the truth. Here is the truth. The word that is used by the Bible for all sexual behavior beyond marriage between one man and one woman is sin. Not my word, the Bible's word. The word that is used is sin, which simply means missing the mark, falling below God's standards. Uh, coming up a little bit lower than what God has intended for us. And the basic expectation, though, that God has with that is that sexual behavior would be confined to the union of one man and one woman for life. And any behavior outside of that, the Bible describes as less than what God has expected. Now, many people will take the pertinent scriptures and they'll try to dismiss those or reinterpret them, but they're really quite clear. 
And I would encourage for you, if you doubt that, to look at the following passages this very week. You'll see them up on the screen, and you might want to take note of them in your notes. Leviticus 18.22, Matthew 19.1-11, Romans 1.26-27, 1 Corinthians 6, which we saw already, 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10, and 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 8. Those will get you started on this truth that God designed us and he desires the highest good for us. And he has decided that sex outside the boundaries of marriage between one man and one woman, while culturally convenient and culturally accepted, is simply not God's best for us. That's a hard word, but these are the words of Scripture. Now here also is truth. A failure to love neighbor is sin. A failure to love neighbor in whatever area they might be struggling. A failure to love people unconditionally. Friends, family, neighbors, enemies, whoever. Failure to love that sin of omission with no strings attached, non-judgmental love, that also the Bible describes as sin. And so this is what we're after, full of grace, full of truth, loving God and loving others. Now, I'd ask you to know this about me. I'm not a hot-button teacher. That's just not who I am. I'm not a hot-button speaker. I love to teach the Bible. I love to shepherd people. I'm, I'm a pastor and a shepherd. And so it's, it's not my habit to, to speak on these kinds of issues. But again, some people struggle with same-sex attraction. And I, I hope that you can get out of today's message. This is what God's Word says. And this is how we speak of God's unsurpassable love, even as we honor those who are made in the image of God, and speak to the way that God has intended for us to flourish under His care. That's my hope here. This issue affects us all. In one way or another, it affects us all. And our desire is that Carney E. Free would be the kind of place where it's safe to struggle and ask questions and to seek and hopefully find answers and to know that there's always grace at the foot of the cross. Again, there are so many questions that we could address this morning, but Here are four different questions that I frequently get, and I imagine that you get from time to time as well. You can write them down as you see them on the screen. The first one goes like this. Why would I believe that a loving God would prevent marriage for people who love each other? A little bit of audience participation. Who's been asked that question? Raise your hand. Okay, probably about half of us in this room have been asked that question. Why would a loving God prevent marriage from two people that seem to love each other? I I sympathize with that question. The trouble with it is, we already do. We still do. We still restrict marriage. We don't allow polygamy. We don't allow a mother to marry uh, her son or a father to marry his daughter. We don't allow an adult to marry a teenager. Across the millennia, marriage has always been restricted. And so to redefine marriage the way it has been in just the past four or five years ignores the fact that we still continue to restrict marriage in many ways today. It always has been a restricted right. Why? 
for the good of the family. It's always been a restricted right for the good of the family structure. Now, even so, the state will do what the state will do, and it has. And we live together in this pluralistic culture in which we have to learn to disagree agreeably and show respect even to those that we disagree with. And we must master that art to love people that we disagree with. That is a countercultural Christian influence that we must excel in today. And the church is going to have to stand at times against the culture, but going to have to do so in a loving way. The Supreme Court has determined what it has But hear me clearly, God has already spoken on this, and he has across the millennia, and the state is not our final authority. We trust one who is way bigger than the state. We trust in one who is more transcendent and more benevolent and has better interests for us in mind than the state. Now, related to this, we oftentimes hear, well, isn't this just an Old Testament thing? Okay, Jesus never spoke to the homosexual issue. He never spoke to gay marriage. And it's just a, an Old Testament thing. Again, by show of hands, have you heard that question? Okay. Fair number of us have heard that question as well. Well, it's not just an Old Testament thing, and let me explain how. There's a blueprint, though, that is given to us in the scriptures about marriage, though, that's repeated four different times in the Bible of how God has created a covenant for us in marriage. And the covenant is this, that you see from the very lips of Jesus in Matthew 19. We also see this in the book of Mark, we see it in Genesis, and we see it over in Ephesians chapter 5. And it goes like this. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, and a woman will leave her father and mother, and they will be united to one another, and they will become one flesh. And this is the covenant agreement that God has given for the flourishing of the family and for the flourishing of culture. That mom and dad would step out of the way, mom and dad. (laughs) Mom and dad would step out of the way so Johnny and Jenny could be united to one another. They'd be united under one roof for the very first time. They would become one financially and emotionally and spiritually. And then the ultimate gift of that all is they become one flesh physically. This is God's ordained will for the building of the marriage. Now, it's true that Jesus never explicitly speaks to homosexuality. And you might ask, well, why is that? That Yes, he gives this prescription for what marriage is supposed to look like, but why didn't he speak to homosexuality? Well, the reason is, simply, homosexuality was beyond the pale within the Jewish culture in which he ministered. It wasn't practiced within the Judaism of his day. It was beyond the pale for Jews of his day, much like saying, do not marry your mother, is beyond the pale sexually in our day. It didn't need to be stated because it wasn't going to happen in that culture. Conversely, in the Greco-Roman culture that Paul ministered in, homosexual practice was readily accepted and even affirmed, much like it is in our culture. And so we see no less than three different times that the Apostle Paul does indeed address that. You don't address that which is not an issue culturally. You do address that which is an issue culturally. That's why Paul addresses it and Jesus does not. Now a further question and the one that Michael asked at the beginning of the service today was probably best phrased for me with a man that I was discipling many years ago. And he was a guy who came to the Lord at about age 40. And he had lived a very promiscuous lifestyle. 
for the previous 25 years. And he comes to the Lord, and that's a big, big change to move from promiscuity to seeking to follow the Lord and honoring women who are made in the image of God. And he was seeking to make movements in that, but I remember vividly at one point, he paused and he said to me, Adrian, I, I know that I've ruined my life with all that I've done. I recognize that my promiscuity has ruined my life and the lives of many others, but I just can't seem to understand why God would really care what I do with my body, in my bedroom, with whom and how. Pretty blunt, but that's what he said. Why would God even care? Is he some kind of cosmic killjoy? What difference does it make to him? Why does God care so much? Because he loves you too much. He cares so much because he loves us too much to live to allow us to live outside of boundaries in this very important area of life. Do you know that couples who cohabit and then get married get divorced 50% more often than couples who do not cohabit before marriage? Seems counterintuitive, doesn't it? The cultural norm is cohabit first and then you get to know each other and then get married if you're right for each other. I think there are at least three reasons, and I'd like to speak specifically to, to the young people in the audience today, whose hormones are raging. Can we all just empathize with that? Okay, can we even laugh at it? Please, come on. Okay, I remember vividly when I was at that age, it was so difficult, but God invites us to wait for a number of good reasons, not arbitrary reasons. The reasons God would invite us not to cohabit, but to wait till marriage. I can think of at least three very good reasons. Number one, when you begin engaging in sexual practice but before marriage, it muddies the waters of your relationship. It prevents you from building a friendship. It prevents you from being able to have good conflict resolution and good communication and developing a really solid friendship. And the truth of the matter is, well, when it comes to sex, all of us are these fragile little saplings planted in the ground, and nothing breaks us more quickly than a sexual trespass. And so we have to learn to restrain our bodies. And as we learn to discipline ourselves, to restrain our bodies, we actually can become these oaks of righteousness. I think God, in his generosity, invites us to be restrained before marriage and during marriage in order to protect us. It's for our own good. Second, he invites us to abstain before marriage and then during marriage with anyone besides our spouse it, because there will be times in marriage that you cannot have sex. There will be times in marriage that you have to abstain. And it gets a whole lot more difficult to abstain in marriage if you have not learned the discipline of abstaining before marriage. When you learn the discipline of abstaining before marriage, young people, it will grant you the grace, it will grant you the strength to discipline yourself to abstain later on when for any number of different reasons you're not able to enjoy that gift for a season. And third, I think very significantly, we would all have to acknowledge that sex is a tremendous gift. It is powerful and it's sacred. It's a gift that has the potential to bring great pleasure and great pain to life. And God intends that it's such a sacred gift, it's such a blessing, that it is to be given as an instrument of flourishing 
as the pinnacle, as the end of those marriage vows that a couple says before their pastor and before the assembly of family and friends when they say, I do for you for life. And thereafter, you become one flesh. You see, God is not holding out on us. As difficult as it is, we have to remind ourselves and remind our kids that indeed what he wants is something better with this sacred gift that he has given to us. Unfortunately, in the church, what we've done is we've talked about sexuality as this terrible, awful thing that is so bad it has to be reserved only for the person that you love the most. Which is ridiculous. It's a gift from God that's to be used for our flourishing inside the right boundaries out of his love. Okay, moving on. A fourth question, though, that I regularly get is, well, I was born this way. What do you expect? I was born this way. And to that, I would simply say, yes, you, you very well may have been born that way. And I have no problem affirming that some people may be born with same-sex attraction because, guess what? I also am disordered. Anyone else? I also am fallen from birth. Anyone else? I also have an inclination to do things that are far different than what God wants from me. From an early stage, I was lustful for that which was not mine. From an early stage, I was selfish and prideful and struggled with anger. I also am disordered. Two hands way up in the air, please. Okay? All of us are, and so we recognize this great need for a Savior because all of us are fallen. We live in a fallen world. That's simply what Christianity says. And if you doubt the reality of the fallenness of our world, I would urge you just to watch two three-year-olds play together for about five minutes. You will see there's something wrong with them. Okay? They're not all perfect. All of us are fallen, so why would we be surprised that even sexuality can be fallen? And there is a huge difference between having inclinations towards something and acting on that. In fact, I'd like to introduce you to a gentleman who lives here in our community, uh, here in Kearney. His name is Brady Cohn, and he leads a wonderful ministry called Calibrate Ministries. And Calibrate Ministries is specifically dedicated to those who are struggling with sexual sin of all different kinds. And Brady's kind of unique in that he has made this very bold discipleship decision. That even though he's always struggled with same-sex attraction, he has committed himself to Christ. He has committed himself to Christian community. He's committed himself to repentance, committed himself to following God and resisting his desires. And he sat down with me and shared a bit of his story. It was so powerful, I wanted him to share a little bit of it with you. Take a quick look. I'm, I'm from Nebraska, born and raised here, and I grew up struggling with sexuality issues, with same-sex attraction. And by the time I was in college, I really was identifying as gay and, and living that lifestyle. Um, and then after I came to know Christ, the Lord really did some great work in my life and led me to a different life and provided a lot of healing in my life. And then after that, I just seen that the, there's so much need within the church to be talking about the issue of homosexuality and sexuality in general that uh, God really called me into ministry and has given me an opportunity to help equip the church to handle these issues better and to start a conversation on uh, sexuality and what should that look like with inside the church. When you embrace Christ, that meant some difficult decisions as it related to your discipleship. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. Uh, it was a difficult process, and it, it meant... Uh, as I fell in love with God and his word, it meant surrendering that and choosing Jesus and choosing discipleship over what my heart was desiring. Sometimes I go back to the verse 
uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, that our hearts are deceitful. And some, I have to have the understanding that sometimes what my heart wants and sometimes what it desires, not only sexually but relationally, is not in accordance to God's will for my life. So I have to surrender and be obedient to Christ, uh, especially when my heart is desiring. Things are contrary uh, to his word and to how he created us to live. Hmm. How many years would you say now, Brady, uh, you've been a part of a church? The church has been part of your life. Yeah, it was really 10 years ago now that uh, I came to the Lord and has really made the church part of my life. You know, there's time when I was younger where I wanted to be a part of the church, but I just was, had been so wounded by the church that I, I thought that there's no place for me there, that I can't go there until I, I, I'm changed, but uh, I couldn't change myself. And so um, I thought there's no place for me in church. But now for about 10 years, I've been in churches where they've embraced me, loved me, uh, walked me through this struggle in my life. Would you mind giving us a couple um, specific examples of how the church can hinder um, or how the church could help those who are struggling in this area? I think there's really two ways that the church hindered um, my spiritual walk with God, especially in sexuality. And one was just silence. Like by not talking about it, uh, made it seem like it, my sin is so much worse than everyone else's that I can't even talk about what's going on in my life. And that silence can be isolating and uh, it can be almost just as painful as, as what's said that shouldn't be said. Um, and then that leads me to the second part is just that I, I grew up in churches where um, homosexuality was talked about in ways that made it seem like the one unforgivable sin. Um, and that was just really painful uh, and, and, and made it feel like there's just no hope for me or, or no place here within church for someone who's struggling with this. Hmm. Hmm. And then how about on the other side of the ledger? How has uh, church helped as you've processed this? I've been blessed to be a part of some great churches that have come along beside me and seen me no different than them, but godly men who have just embraced me and included me in their lives. They haven't uh, placed my sin as in a different category as their own, but they've seen that we all struggle, we all twist our sexuality, we all um, seek things that we shouldn't, and uh, they've shown the same repentance that they're calling me to, and that, that's made me feel included and made me feel like I'm just one of the guys, and uh, we're all in this thing together. It's powerful. So what I hear you saying is you've had a, a group of friends around here, around you that haven't elevated some sins as if they're the worst Absolutely. and minimized others. But the rec there's a recognition that all of us have areas of struggle that we all need to work on. Absolutely. And so they've taken their, their own sin just as seriously as, as my sin. Now how about the other side of that question? Someone else in this church who maybe has a family member who is struggling? or someone else in this church who has friends that are struggling or, or they would just like to um, be a friend to someone Absolutely. who has same-sex attraction. Uh, how would we do that? What, would, what should we expect? And what are some things that, uh, what, what's some counsel that you would give to us as we seek to be that kind of church? Um, you know, for, for everyone here, everyone in the congregation who doesn't struggle, they're not off the hook because uh, the people who do, they need them. Uh, they need the body of Christ come along beside them to love them, support them, to help bear the burdens that come with, with these struggles. And uh, one way that, that, that the church at large can do that is just um, repenting of 
their own sin and how they've twisted sexuality. You know, when I look at guys with same-sex attraction, um, maybe living the, the homosexual lifestyle, um, the idolatry, the twisting of sexuality that I see behind that is the same twisting of sexuality behind so many heterosexual relationships. And so we need to show them that, that repentance is for all of us and we're all on a level playing field. We're all sinners in need of the same grace by the same Christ and we're all in this together and we can fight it together as a team. Even though maybe the object of some people's idolatry is different, we're all in this together. Brother, I thank you for your faithfulness to Christ, your desire to, to love and serve him and to serve the church even as you continue to struggle with certain temptations. We all struggle with different temptations. I am so grateful for your faithfulness to Christ as you seek to uh, be his disciple and to point others toward him as well. Absolutely, thank you, Adrian. Appreciate you, brother. You too. Yeah, yeah we can clap for that. Brady's right outside in this hallway today. And uh, he's got a little booth for his ministry, Calibrate Ministries, but please don't miss the center of that. We've all twisted this. We're all in need of repentance. We're all in need of community. We're all in need of the lavish grace that Christ alone provides. We struggle together. We need each other. You know, what's deeply saddening to me in this area is people who struggle with sexual sins, whatever they might be, frequently feel marginalized by the, ch the church. They feel marginalized by the very place that they need the most in their hour of need. Right at their time of need, they feel like they, they can't be there. But again, what if we develop this kind of church, though, that's this third way that says in our life groups, in our small group communities, in our adult education classes, whatever area of struggle, there's there's safety here. There's a couple guys, though, that I can talk to, and they won't marginalize me because of the areas of struggle, though, that I, that I have. Another question that I've sometimes got is, you know, Adrian, how, how should I act if, if a gay couple moves in down the street from me? The same ways you act if anyone else moves down the street from you. Bring them cookies. Ask how they're doing. Mourn when they mourn. Weep with them. Pray with them. And to the extent that they convey to you the way the church has hurt them, don't seek to defend, just apologize. Because to the extent that we've done that, we've been less than loving, less than gracious. Now the other side of the coin, I think, is also times often failed in this conversation. I have heard frequently from the gay community that uh, this is basically a conversation that needs to be framed around tolerance and the problem with you Christians is that you are hateful. And we are seeking progress and tolerance, and you don't seem to care about any of that. And that's just a false narrative. That is not true. The gay people that I know would never say that I am hateful or fearful of them. I'm sure it's the same thing for you. Rather, we have to be able to restore, especially amongst Christians, the ability to disagree agreeably. And to say that we respect others, to show that we respect others even as we disagree with them. And we flatly disagree, please hear me, we flatly disagree with anyone who would say that the centerpiece of your identity is your sexuality. 
I flatly disagree with anyone who says to young people, the center of who you are is your body, your beauty, how much you get together with other people. Disavow yourself of that lie, young people. What you are is so much more than your sexuality. What you are is a son or daughter of God, bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. What you are is a son or daughter of God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he will never leave you, never forsake you. You are a prince of the king, a princess of the king. You're far more than sexuality. Please, we need to reinforce this for our young people who are taught lie after lie after lie in this regard. I think of the beauty of Jesus who once again modeled this third way for us so beautifully in one of the most vivid portraits in all of scripture when he finds this woman who was caught in adultery. Rather, these Pharisees found her and they bring her before their stones. Very interesting though, they didn't bring the man. They just bring the woman. And they're about to kill her with these stones. And what is it that Jesus does in that moment? He bravely turns and stands between those Pharisees and this woman. And he says, you go ahead and throw a stone at me if you think that you can cast the first stone. Whoever is without sin, you be the first one to cast the stone. And they all drop their stones and they leave And Jesus turns to this woman who was broken and vulnerable in this moment, as vulnerable as someone could possibly be. She was probably half naked. And he looks at her and he says, has anyone condemned you? Neither do I condemn you. But follow me. Enter into community with me. Follow me. I'll give you help to leave your life of sin. Friends, this is grace. Our God was willing to forgive that woman. Our God is willing to forgive you. Our God is willing to forgive me. Our God is willing to forgive your kids. Our God is willing to forgive anyone that you know of anything that you have done. This is grace. This is what this woman found. You are welcome to come to me and receive my forgiveness. And so also Jesus would say the same to us. You are welcome to come to me however you might have fallen short of God's standards in this area or any other area. You are welcome to come to me. And there will be no stones. There will be the grace of God most high. One of the things that's most astounding about the passages that we find in the Bible, specifically in the New Testament related to sexual sin, is right on the heels of condemning those sexual sins, we see repeatedly the biblical authors offering extravagant, lavish demonstrations of God's mercy and redemption and forgiveness over and over again such that we are reminded of this gracious gift of our God that we're about to celebrate in communion, that however you have failed, you gotta know, your God today is willing to forgive. Would you listen to these words once again that we began with from 1 Corinthians 6, and you'll see them up on the screen. And perhaps, as we began the message, you just noted the sexual angle on these passages. Would you notice instead 
the forgiveness angle on these passages as I read from 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, and on and on the list may go. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God, and that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Do you not know that your bodies are now temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not on your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, may we honor God with our bodies. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word does not fall short on either truth or grace. That your word is full of truth and your word is full of grace. And that when we see the image of God, Jesus himself, the incarnate one, he came full of grace and full of truth. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're not willing to leave us to our own devices, but you put proper boundaries over our lives. And you do so for our own good. You desire to protect us. And how we thank you, Lord, that you want something better for us. God, I know that this issue hits very close to home for many of us in this room, and so I pray for anyone today who is struggling with sexual sin in any way. Perhaps they've been looking at pornography. Perhaps lust has gotten the better of them. Perhaps they've done something that they wish they wouldn't have. Father, your grace is for them too. I pray that you would know today that Jesus' blood is for you today. And there is nothing that you have done that could separate you from the love of God as you merely turn toward him and say, Jesus, I want your best for my life. Maybe you've never done that. Today would be the day to do that. Before we take communion would be the time to do that. You say, Lord Jesus, I, I admit that I've sinned in thought, word, and deed. I've not loved you with my whole heart. I've not loved my neighbor as myself. Please forgive me. You need not have all your questions answered. You need not even have all of your questions answered related to today's topic. But you can look up at that cross and know that God loves you and forgives you. If you can affirm God's love, if you can know his forgiveness, if you can turn to him and recognize right now that he has graciously given his all to you, that there's nothing you could do to earn it, that in spite of all of your failures, you turn to him and you ask for forgiveness, then he says, yes, I will have you. And then I would urge you to take this bread and take this cup, these beautiful symbols of Christ's body and blood given for you. 
We love you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your great forgiveness. Would you receive us now as we prepare to take the bread and the cup? Please receive us and focus our hearts on your great love. In Jesus' name.